Amen. Good morning, Harlem. How's everyone doing out there today? I know Jerome probably shocked everyone awake with that welcome, but I love the energy. So let's try that again. Good morning, Harlem. So I'm cheating a bit. Uh, while everyone else is at the marriage retreat, I said, you know, I'd much rather spend my time with everyone else. So, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. You know, you guys don't give me credit for a lot of things, but I'd much rather be here. Um, so welcome, and if you are joining with us, uh, again, we are the Harlem region of the New York City Church of Christ, uh, and for all of our family and friends, we want to welcome you here today, uh, braving the cold weather. I'm definitely ready to move on to some warmer weather. I don't know about you. Uh, one minute is 60, the next minute is negative 20. Uh, you just got to be ready, man. Um, so we are doing a, a bit of a combination here, a, a, a kind of general message and communion message, and so... Uh, this is going to be uh, a bit uh, more brief, and James is not here, so I'm going to see if I can wrap this up and get us home in 10 minutes. I'll be down with that. But here's the thing. You can't say anything, though. This, it's got to stay here, all right? If I, if I get you out in 10, you've got to do me that solid, all right? Uh, and if you're visiting with us, uh, I am not the pastor, so if you don't like what you hear today, then come back next week because I won't be here. Uh, if you do like what you hear, then still come back, because then the next guy is going to be a whole lot better. So uh, I want you guys to really be encouraged today and inspired. Uh, and if you're joining with us, I'm going to give you a bit of a context and, and, and some backstory, and also for uh, our regular members. We've been looking at uh, starting a series, and we started this last week, uh, with James around spiritual discipline. And so there are many areas in our lives where we need to be disciplined, where discipline is key and so we began last week with talking about discipline in our Bible study, right? Being consistent uh, with our times in the Word of God. And so we were looking at uh, and using as kind of our inspiration, Colossians 3, verse 16. And it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, that's a, a very short line, but such a poignant one. You know, first of all, where is the word of Christ and where do we find it? We find it in the Bible, right? And it says that we need to let that word dwell in us. You know, the word dwell means to live in, means to reside. It means that it is a part of us. So God's word shouldn't just be something that we do every now and again. The command is that it dwells and lives within us. And then how should it dwell? Should it dwell with you waking up? and begrudgingly reading the Bible? Should it dwell by you saying, oh my God, I can't believe God said I, that I shouldn't do this? It says, no, it needs to dwell in us richly. That it needs to have a generous context to our lives. That when we are dwelling in the word of God, it is because we are delighting in the opportunity to understand God's will for our lives. And so James started us off last week, and I'm going to give us a continuation with a really important question. And the question is, why should I read the Bible? And it was interesting that as James was going through the points, you know, I've been a part of this church now for uh, over 20 years. Uh, I was baptized literally down the block. Well, I wasn't baptized down the block. I was baptized at the Javits Center on, on 34th Street. But I was met at City College on the, uh, yeah, City College, shout out to City College. I was met in the Knack Building uh, by, yeah, <laughs> if you're from City College, you know all about the Knack building. Uh, but I was met there by 
uh, a friend uh, 20 years ago who invited me to study the Bible. And, you know, so it, it was really important for me to think about 20 years later, why do I read the Bible? And it sounded like such a simple question, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that I struggled a bit to really figure that out. You know, after a while, if you've been around for a long time, you begin to sometimes lose the meaning of why you do what you do. It can be so robotic. It can just be like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, sure, but, but, but why? Why do you do it? And if someone was to ask you, why do you read the Bible, what would you tell them? If you're someone who's interested in reading the Bible, why do you want to read the Bible? What are you searching for? What are you looking for? Because the answer to that question is an important way to guide us in the outcome of that effort. And so last week, James mentioned two important points of why we should read the Bible. And there are many, many points of why we should read the Bible, but we focused on two last week. And one was that we need to read the Bible so that we could know Jesus. And the second point was so that we could grow spiritually. And so today, I'm going to get us started on our next point, which is that we need direction. You know, and as I mentioned, asking the question of why we should read the Bible seems like such a simple one, but it is one that we oftentimes overlook. You know, and it made me think about my own history and connection to the Bible. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a house that had a ceremonial Bible. I don't know if you know what a ceremonial Bible was, but it was the Bible that was on display. We had this big, and I think to this day we still have it when I, when I go to my family's house, it was this big, thick, white Bible, and it had all these glossy pictures and these maps of Jerusalem and Israel. And I, I remember being a kid and, you know, kind of just flipping through the pages and, you know, not really understanding what I was looking at, but this Bible would sit on the center of our table, and it was one of those things that you looked at, but no one really touched it. You know, it was kind of like grandma's fine china. You know, you know that china that sits in that glass cabinet that you look at, but you better not be eating off of grandma's fine china, right? Or it, it was like that plastic couch. Remember that plastic couch? Some of you guys don't know about that plastic couch, man. It was to be admired, but never sat in. And for me, it, it, it made me think about my introduction and upbringing to the Bible. And I think for a lot of us, we really need to kind of reflect and think back, what was our introduction to the Bible? You know, how, how were we taught to think and see and interact with it? Because how we were raised to do that can still affect how we approach it today. You know, for me, the Bible was something that only came out at church, right? Like, like that was the ritual that I grew up with. And so when my mother would take me to church, that was the time when the pastor would read passages and scriptures and so for me, I associated church and a pastor with reading the Bible. It never dawned on me that I should be going back and reading this thing for myself. I should be making this a part of my daily life and having a personal connection with God. And I think for many of us, you know, we come to church with that mindset of this is the time where I get to really dig deep into the scriptures and hear the word. When in fact... This should be a part of your daily life. This should be a part of, your, of, of, of making decisions about how you're going to move forward in your life. You know, how is the Bible dwelling in you richly? So we're going to talk about that the Bible gives us direction. Is that okay with you guys? All right. So, you know, last week James made the point that the Bible helps us to discern right from wrong, right? It helps us to understand 
what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing. But thanks be to God, the Bible doesn't just tell us what's right and what's wrong. It tells us how to actually direct our paths so that we stay on the right path and avoid the wrong path. You know, think of what it would be like to just know the directions, excuse me, to just know what's right from wrong, but not know the directions of where you're going. Imagine what the road and streets would look like if people only knew how to read the turn signals, but had no idea where they were going. So I know this is right, and I know this is left. But where should I actually go? Which one should I actually take? You know, what would that look like? And I thought, this actually happens, and it happens on 42nd Street when you're around tourists. Right? It's like people know what left and right is. They just don't know which direction to take. And that's what it's like when you're thinking about, you know, how do I know where to go? And the Bible provides the direction in our lives. So let's start to look in our Bible and understand how it provides direction for our lives. So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. And we're going to start here. And the scriptures are going to be behind me as well. So if you'd like to follow uh, along uh, on the big screen, you can do that as well. And in Proverbs chapter 9, we're going to read in verse 10 and kind of read and jump around a bit in Proverbs to understand the theme of how we can do this. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Turn in Proverbs chapter 21, and we're going to read in verse 30. It says, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. You know, so here we're learning about the importance and the direction of wisdom. And turn again in Proverbs chapter 19, and we're going to read in verse 8. It says, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who cherishes understanding prospers. You know, wisdom is an essential thing to have as we seek to understand God's direction for our lives. You know, it says that wisdom, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says wisdom, it says there's no wisdom or insight that can succeed against the Lord. And that wisdom, he who loves wisdom loves his own soul. You know, this is how we need to approach the direction of God, that we are seeking his wisdom. We're seeking his knowledge. We're not relying on our own selves to figure these things out, but we are making decisions to go to God and say, I need you to show me the way to these things. You know, in Psalm chapter uh, 119, in verse 105, and again, this is behind me, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. You know, it says that God's word is a light to our feet. If you can visualize that for a second, and if you had a flashlight, if you've ever been in the dark, and you point that flashlight down to your feet. It says that this is what the word of God is like for us. It is a guide so that our feet can walk in the right direction. It is a light for our path. That when we understand God's word and we seek his wisdom, it will direct us in where we need to go. You know, that's an amazing, amazing thing to have. And we don't have to go far to get it. You know, there was a time when reading the Bible uh, wasn't just as easy as picking it up or flicking on your phones it took travel, and the Bible wasn't accessible to everyone. But for us to be able to have the ability to have the directions of God at our fingertips, it's something that we need to do a better job at taking more advantage of. 
You know, and life is filled with so many important decisions. And the question is, can the Bible help us in making those decisions? You know, before I understood and actually read the Bible for myself, I thought the Bible only talked about three things. The Ten Commandments, the crucifixion of Jesus, and revelations. That was it. That's all I thought that the Bible tackled was those three topics. So if I wanted to know how to live, I would have to depend on the the Ten Commandments, know something about the cross and the crucifixion, and then the rest was just fire and brimstone. It was like there was no in between there. You know, but the Bible can help us in so many ways. What about relationships? Can the Bible help us with relationships? And what kind of friends should you look for? Well, the answer is yes. I'm glad you asked. It says in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20, it says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. I'm going to say that again. It says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You know, you are who you hang around. And if we think that we're above influence of the company we keep, then we are fooling ourselves. You know, the Bible is saying here that, hey, here's direction. If you want to grow in wisdom, then guess what you can do? Spend your time around other wise people. Right? Like, this is a formula. You know, we don't have to be secluded in our approach and the way that we look at things. We can get guidance by hanging around and being around other wise people. But the adverse can also happen. That if we hang around fools, that we're going to suffer that harm. And it really causes us to think about who we spend most of our time with. And how is that relationship affecting you personally? You know, here, you know, oftentimes we think that hanging around an influence is something that's more relegated in, in, in our youth. That's, that's something that teenagers really struggle with, right? And so we, we tell our kids, you know, don't hang around that person. They're going to be a bad influence on you. But the question is, well, mom and dad, who do you hang around with? Who is influencing you? Who are your friends? When you think about your circle and your pocket of friendships, what is their influence like on you? Is there positive outcomes that comes out of that? Or do you find yourself in sketchy situations? You know, I had to make hard decisions about the people that I hung around with, the friends and the people that I called friends. And these were people that I shared genuine moments with, but when I really assessed the times that we spent, it it, it wasn't leading in positive directions. Oftentimes, it led in places that I would wake up the next morning regretting. It seemed fun in the moment, but the morning after, when the dust had settled, I looked up and just thought, what did I get myself into? Most of the altercations and fights I had was not being by myself. It was around being other people. So the company we keep is important. Let's look at another uh, scripture and verse around relationships. In Proverbs chapter 22. And we're going to read in verse 24. I mean, I, I, I love how simple the Bible makes these directions. If you have any confusion about this, Take the time to really read the Bible. In in Proverbs 22 and verse 24, it says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. If you literally go to the Bible and say, Who should my friends be? The scripture says, Not the person who is hot-tempered. Avoid that person. And if you say, But why? (laughs) Why should I avoid that hot person? It says, Do not associate with one easily angered. Here's why. 
or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. The Bible says people who are quick-tempered and hot-tempered are people to be avoided. And why do you avoid them? Because you may get yourself caught up in that very same situation. So the company we keep and the friendships that we have really make a difference in our lives. And the Bible gives us direction to avoid such people. And if there's still any question about what the Bible has to say about this, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, the Bible can help us in our relationships and friendships. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, the Bible says, do not be misled. So if you read the first two scriptures and thought to yourself, I can still hang around whoever I want to hang around with and it's not going to bother me. The scripture literally starts out by saying, do not be misled. And it goes on to say, bad company corrupts good character. You know, there were times when I thought to myself, I can take it. I can hang around these people and I'm going to let my influence overshadow their influence but didn't think for a second that the reverse could easily happen, that their conduct could also influence mine. And so we have to really be wise about the people that we associate with. And this isn't about labeling people as, you know, I'm going to avoid you, I'm going to stay away from you, I, I want nothing to do with you, but it's about understanding your own bound, the, the, the boundaries in your own life. You know, being wise and saying, you know what, that situation at that time of night in that location is not going to be good for me. So I'd much rather be around people who are going to help to bring the best out of me. So the Bible can help and give us direction in our lives. Where else can the Bible help us and give us direction? You know, one of the areas where people can often fail miserably is in married and dating relationships. You know, right now, the state of marriage and divorce and the rates continue, continue to plunge. You know, still hovering around 50%, and even in some uh, statistics, that the rate of divorce is even higher than that. But the Bible gives us direction in even the kinds of people that we choose to enter into an, a more intimate relationship with. So there's our friendships, but then also the people that we choose to be more connected with through marriage and even through dating. You know, fellas, if you're thinking about what kind of woman does God want me to be around and associate with, the Bible makes it really clear in Proverbs 31. You know, this is one of my favorite passages. And I remember at the time when I was at a place where I was thinking about, man, you know, I, I really want to be able to kind of get into a relationship and, and see what that could look like for my life. You know, I remember a brother sitting down with me and helping and showing me this scripture that really helped make a difference in guiding me around that decision. And in Proverbs 31, in verse 10, it says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. That means that she, has, she, she, she knows how to make financial investments. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets out about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hands, she holds the distaff and grasps 
the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women may do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I remember when I first read this, I was like, I need to rethink what I thought was going to be important in a relationship with a woman. You know, here it, it, it talks about all of these other characteristics. And there's nothing wrong with having attraction to someone. There's nothing wrong with seeing someone as beautiful or being beautiful or spending the time to invest in those things. This is not saying that those things are bad. But this is saying that what should be at the core of the things that we seek in relationship should not be based on that. You know, in verse 30, it says, charm is deceptive. You know, so many times we spend and, and, and look for the person who's the most charming. You know, the person who knows how to spin those words or the person who knows how to, you know, make us feel like we're the most special person in the world. And that is important. But there's so much more and there's so much deeper things that we should be thinking about and looking for in relationships. Even when it comes to beauty, the Bible says that beauty is fleeting. It doesn't say that beauty is bad. It just says it's not going to last forever. So what looks very attractive right now may not look the same 10, 20 years from now. And when that beauty leaves, what are you going to have to hold on to in that connection and relationship? You know, my wife is still beautiful. I, I just want to make sure that that is clear. <laughs> 20 years later, almost 20 years later, uh, my wife looks just as beautiful as the day we got married. But I didn't marry her for just being beautiful. She was a woman who feared God. She was a woman who knew how to help other people. You know, I remember when I uh, first met her, and I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, didn't think she was, <laughs> I didn't think she would say yes. I was like, I'm going to just throw it out here and see what happens. But I didn't think for one second that she was going to be interested in me. And so, you know, I would, I would, I would talk to my friends about her, and, and her friends were also my friends. So, you know, you don't want to try to get that, that inside information, you know. You know, did she talk to you about me? Did she ask you about me? You know, you know I, I was that guy. I, I, was, I, was, I was trying to figure out where I stood because I'm like, I just need to know if I'm wasting my time, then I, could, I can stop, right? Like, you know, I, I can put my energy somewhere else. But what I loved about her was seeing and watching her serve other people. You know, I remember seeing her at, at a Hope event, and she was just joyfully giving and smiling. And I was like, man, I want to be around that for the rest of my life. I want to be around someone who enjoys serving and giving to others. And that is what really keeps our relationship to this day. You know, when I see her being this amazing mother to our children, you know, when we are, you know, coming home from work and extremely tired, 
you know, she, for some reason, has so much more energy and ability than I do. I just want to be left alone. I need at least a good two hours before I could talk to the kids. And it's not that I don't want to talk to the kids. I just know before those two hours, I might not say something helpful. So it's like, all right, go to mommy, and then mommy's going to spend good time with you, right? And they figured it out by now. It took them a while, but they get it now. But when I see my wife, after a long day of work, giving to two energetic kids, it just makes me feel so grateful. Or waking up early in the morning. I'm not the morning person. She is. You know, I have hard times in the morning. But she wakes up and is right out there with them. And, of course, I don't want to make it seem like I'm just lying around doing nothing here. I do eventually get up and interact and become part of the family. But, man, I am so grateful that my wife makes that initial effort because it is so helpful in our, in our household. You know, to watch her read uh, Bible stories to our kids at night. You know, it, it's like, man, this is who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And so when we think about the person that we want to be with, are we pursuing charm and beauty? Or are we pursuing these deeper connections? Amen? You know, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. In verse 7, it says, you know, and for some backstory, this is when uh, Samuel was sent to find uh, the next king who was going to be anointed. And Samuel went out looking for who he thought physically was going to be the next king. And he comes back and reports that he can't find anyone because he's not thinking in the way that God is. And in uh, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, God is telling us where should our, our, our intent and direction be when we're looking to have a relationship with someone. Should it be on their outward appearance, on their, on, on their height, on the way that they look outwardly? God says, no, we need to be looking at people's hearts because that is, what, that is what is going to determine if that relationship is going to last. You know, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verse 14, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You know, these are choice jewels that will help us to save, that will save us from a lot of misery when we follow the direction of God. You know, here God is saying, you know, we need to be careful about who we're being yoked with in a relationship. Does this person share your spiritual values? Does this person share the things that you find important and the things that you choose to spend your time, money, and attention on? If they're going in a different direction from you, all of the good intention in the world and all of the attraction is not going to make that situation work out to its best. You know, you're going to constantly find yourself at odds. And so who we decide to be yoked with, the relationship, needs to be grounded in things that are of biblical content. But so many times, especially when we get in those moments of just wanting to be together, just wanting to have companionship, we can sometimes compromise that and ignore that. But God is saying there is nothing more important than being yoked with someone who has the same beliefs and the same conviction. You know, we need to make sure that we invest and take the time to find and make that the priority, not the other things. Amen? You know, all the self-help books and talk shows cannot give us the wisdom of God. You know, the wisest men 
and the wisest women cannot give us the wisdom of God. So Dr. Phil and Oprah, Steve Harvey, your mama, your girlfriends, there is no substitute for the wisdom that comes from God. Do you, do you guys get that? And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with seeking advice. The Bible tells us that we should be seeking advice. But it is God's direction that has to be priority in the decisions that we make. You know, if Dr. Phil is telling us one thing and God is saying something else, then we follow the direction of God. If your mother is telling you one thing and God says something else, you follow the direction of God. You know, we need to ensure that God's word holds the highest value in the decisions we make. Not our hearts, not other people, not a book, but God's direct word. You know, what else can God and his word help us with in giving us direction? Well, I'm glad you asked. It can also help us in raising children. You guys are asking some really great questions, by the way. I love, I love the feedback and the interaction. We're in sync right now. You said raising children. I said, guess what? Here it is. We're going to talk about raising children right now. So raising our children. Can the Bible help you to raise your children? All right. Let me, let me think about what I'm going to say here. Um, it is no joke. <laughs> it is, man, parenthood is no joke. It is the, someone described parenthood to me before I, I became a dad as the best and hardest thing you will ever do in your life. And it didn't make sense that something could be both. And then we had kids. And I said, oh, okay, <laughs> this, this is what this person meant. You know, raising children is an incredible blessing and opportunity, but it is also very challenging. And, you know, all of the messages and the words of encouragement that people give you, all of the things that your family and your parents told you before you were raising kids, all of that stuff is really, really good and well. But until you're actually in it, you're like, man, I, I have no clue or idea what we are doing. You know, I am so glad... Uh, that our first child is alive and well because we made so many mistakes with that first child. It was just like we had no idea what we were doing. We, you know, we were just like relying on everybody to help give us some guidance. And so raising children, the Bible gives us guidance around that. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know, if I had to learn this lesson, if I, if, I, if I had to learn any lesson the hard way, it was this one. And the more that I begin to understand why this is common and why this command is specifically targeted towards fathers. You know, how fathers speak to their children can really make or break a child's confidence and ambition in life. You know, dads, when we're hard or harsh to our children, even if our intention is good, the way that that message is received from a father, and not to say that, that a mother's message is not as important, but the message that comes from a father is just different. And how we instruct our children, how we speak to them, it makes a big difference in their day. You know, I see the difference when... I talk to my children in an, in an aggressive way, and I see the difference when I take the time to really teach and instruct them in the right way. And I'm not perfect with this. 
you know, I can be easily and, and quickly triggered. You know, I grew up in a home where, you know, the dad was the authority figure. You know, when that voice, when you heard that voice from dad, then you knew <laughs> you better straighten out because the next one, the next step is not going to be good. You know, there's, there's, there's something about hearing that voice. You know, they say 80% of a dad's job is to say, stop doing that, right? Like, that's, that's most of your job. And when we talk to our children, it really makes an impact. You know, I, I think, you know, there was a, a, a situation that happened uh, a few months ago with my three-year-old son. And <laughs> he, was, he was playing around the, with, a, with a wall outlet. And he had something metal in his hand. I can't remember if it was a, a file or, or a, a paper clip or something. And he's just sitting in front of the outlet. And in the corner of my eye, I see his little hand go like this. And I was just like, and I looked down, and I see him inches away from a, from, and I'm just like, <laughs> there's something with kids where they're like, okay, here's a hole. Here's something else. <laughs> like, they're meant to be together, right? It's like, <laughs> this has to fit. And I, I just reacted, and I, and I you know, I, out, of, out of urgency, right, I, I, I yelled, stop. And he just froze and, just, and was just like, looked up. And I caught myself, and I was like, okay, here's why I need you to stop. Right? And so there was that initial kind of fear and shock that he had. But then when I took the time to explain and said, you know, Aaron, if you put this in here, you're going to get a bad ouchie. And if you get a bad ouchie, it's going to make Daddy sad. And do you want Daddy to be sad? And he said, no, Daddy. And so what initially for him felt like someone trying to stop him or hurt him then turned into an understanding of why this thing was important to avoid. And when I think about those moments to take the time to really instruct and teach our children, fathers, it goes so far in how our children absorb the information. You know, the things that you tell to your daughters impacts how they think messages should be received from other men. And so it's important that as fathers we do not exasperate or irritate our children. You know, how else can the Bible help us with raising children? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you guys still with me? I think I may have gone past 10 minutes, but don't worry. I, I, I didn't forget our initial promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you, sit at, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. You know, the question for us is, are we teaching our children to love the things of this world more than the God who created them? You know, here God is saying that it is important for us to impart these words onto our children. You know, that it's not just enough to say things, but it's also important to show them through the word and through our lives. That our children are seeing us living out the examples that, uh, of the commands of God. And so in verse 7 it says, to impress them on your children. Impress literally means to make an imprint that this is how we should be thinking about indoctrinating and helping our children to understand 
the words of God. And yes, I said indoctrinating. If you think that your children are not being indoctrinated by other things, you're fooling yourself. If you think TV has no effect on how your children think and act, you are fooling yourself. I remember getting the shock of my life when at the age of three, maybe, my, maybe our daughter was four at the time, we were sitting down watching The Little Mermaid. And I've seen The Little Mermaid, I'm not going to say how many times. <laughs> but it's a good movie. I like The Little Mermaid. Um, and, so we, and so I thought, well, I watched The Little Mermaid as a kid, you know, so this shouldn't be a, a big deal. And so if, if you know The Little Mermaid, right, there's uh, Ariel, and she's the mermaid, and she has uh, someone who's, who's, you know, who's uh, after her, uh, Ursula, right? Come on, guys, don't act like you didn't see the movie here. Like I'm the only one here talking about this. And, and so, th- thank you, bro. So, <laughs> the movie starts, and, you know, she's watching Ariel, and then Ursula makes a cameo into the, into the movie. And my daughter literally says, without prompting, she says, she's the bad one. And my wife and I looked at each other, and mind you, Ursula hadn't done anything. Like, we know Ursula's the bad one because we saw the whole movie. But at this point, Ursula was just in the picture. And we were like, well, why do you think she's the bad one? This is what our three-year-old said, because she's dark. And we were like, uh, (laughs) too soon, you know, we didn't expect to do this with a three-year-old. But she was associating color as the differentiation for good and bad. And she was convinced, and she was able to respond and say, this is why I think this person is a bad person. And we had to then instruct her and talk to her about what makes a bad person is not how they look, but what they do. That those are the things that determines what makes someone good or bad. It's their action, not your perception of what they do. But we, that was a, a wake-up call for us to say, man, we really need to be on top of what our children watch. And so we need to think about what are we pouring into our children? You know, what messages are they getting from us? Are they learning to love the things of God, or are they learning to love the things of this world? All right, so moving on, the Bible also gives us direction in dealing with conflicts and forgiveness. Conflicts and forgiveness. Have you ever had a conflict with a person? All right, I'm in the right room. Have you ever had a hard time forgiving someone? That doesn't sound like everyone was being honest there. Have you ever had a hard time forgiving someone? I know, I know, we're all holier than now. We don't, we don't struggle with forgiveness, right? But if we want to understand, you know, what does the Bible have to say and give us direction around conflict and forgiveness? In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 23... It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, what do you do? Ignore it? Push it away? Say, it's not going to be a big deal? Jesus says, no, leave your gift at the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. You know, when I first read that, that was so convicting. Because I thought, surely, if I'm doing something good, no matter if I have issues with somebody else, this shouldn't interfere with my relationship with God, right? Because this is just between me and God. And here, the instruction and the direction is that if you are having a conflict with someone, 
You need to go and resolve that conflict even before you bring your gift to God. Why? Because our relationship with God is connected to people. You know, the scripture here says that, you know, we have to salvage that relationship even before going to God. You know, could you imagine a world where everyone followed this direction? What would it look like if we were quick to go and resolve issues even before doing the other things? You know, and understand what God is saying here. He's saying that before you can even worship him, you need to be reconciled with the issues with your brother and sister, your spouse, your dad, your wife, your neighbor. Why? Because as much as we think we aren't affected by broken relationships, as much as we think we can brush it off and act like we could care less, you know, God knows that unless we reconcile those situations, we cannot be made whole. You know, I remember growing up and having uh, a really kind of tough time with my dad. I mean, I love my dad to this day, and he has been in my life for my entire life from the time that I was born. And, but, you know, just as father and son, we would have a lot of conflict growing up. And I remember growing up being very angry towards my dad. And in a lot of ways, that anger propelled me to even excel in certain areas of my life. And it also made it difficult to move on in other areas. And I remember being young and wanting and wishing <laughs> to be at, a, at the right size and age that I could actually have a physical conflict with my dad. You know, that was where my mind was growing up. And it wasn't until I became a disciple and someone really challenged me on that relationship and said, you know, you need to go and be reconciled with your father. You know, you need to go and talk to him about the things that you experienced and you felt. And that was a very, very hard and challenging decision. But it was one that when we resolved and reconciled it, it made all of the difference. And this is a particularly challenging topic because not everyone is in a position to go to the person and be reconciled. And so this is talking about where there is ability and room to do that. We need to make every effort to go and be reconciled. You know, understand where the responsibility of reconciliation lies. Where does it lie? It lies in the person who recognizes that there is a conflict. If you know that there's a conflict, guess what? <laughs> You've been chosen to go and reconcile that issue. It's not the other person and say, well, they should know that you got something going on. And you're just sitting there stewing, waiting for someone to come to you and say, hey, you look like you're stewing. Are you upset with me? That's not how it works. God is putting the onus on the person who recognizes the conflict, the person who is going to the altar. And he says, if you remember that you have something wrong with your brother, it's your responsibility to go back to that person and say, hey, we need to talk about this. And reconciliation doesn't just have to happen through physical uh, interaction. Because there are not always opportunities to physically talk to someone. You may have had issues or a conflict with someone who is no longer here. They've, they've, they've passed on. So what do you do with that? The reconciliation then happens, as it always does, in your heart. It's a decision to say, I am going to release this person. I am going to release the, the issue and the conflict and, 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 the, and the grudge that I held against this person. I am going to leave it 
and let it be with God. I'm not going to hold on to it any longer. So there is still opportunity to be reconciled, even if you can't see the person face to face. But it's something that has to happen within our hearts. And for God, it's to say that there cannot be conflict, there cannot be unresolved conflict, and a whole relationship with him. The two cannot exist. You know, we have to first seek to be reconciled. Amen? All right, moving on. Uh, the Bible can also help us with our finances. I know this is one of our favorite topics, finances and business. In Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11, it says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. You know, if you've ever thought that that shortcut to getting more money was going to be the way out, the scripture says that it will dwindle away. But the honest operation of growing money little by little is going to last. But this is something that people still think that they can do otherwise, going about it dishonestly. And eventually it gets taken away. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. But we say, surely this isn't true. When I look at celebrities, they look happy with their money. So it must be a formula for me. If I can only get more money, then I'm going to be happier. Now, let's think about that for a second. If you were able to pay off all your bills with money that you earned honestly, right? So we've got to follow the direction of the scriptures. Would you be happier? Yeah. Guys, it's okay. You can <laughs> Of course you'd be, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be happier, right? So it's not saying that money isn't going to be helpful or important, but if your love of money and your pursuit of it as if it's the source of your happiness, it will never make you happy enough. It can bring you temporary and momentary enjoyment when you get to spend it and purchase something that you like or take someone out or buy a gift. There are, there are good things that are connected with, with having money. But if we are looking to money to be the source of our happiness, we are not going to be satisfied. We could never be satisfied with something that is not eternal. You know, only God can bring the satisfaction that we need. Anything else is going to be temporary. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, in verse 12, it says, Wisdom is a shelter. It says, Wisdom is as a shelter as money. As, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Isn't that an amazing scripture? It says, Money can be a shelter, right? Like, you can literally buy shelter with money. But it says that wisdom has the advantage because wisdom preserves the life of the possessor. You know, no matter how much money you have, death will come to you. It comes to us all. There is no one so rich that they escape death. But what is the quality of your life going to be like? You know, in my job, I have to make decisions about whether or not I'm going to cut this time off and spend it with my family, or if I'm going to focus more on earning money. 
And, and, and that's something that I have to struggle with all the time. I have to make decisions and create boundaries and say, you know what, it's time for me to leave this place of work and this place of business and leave those emails alone because guess what? Those emails will be there tomorrow. The problems will not go away. And if you leave that job, that job will go on without you. You know, we have to really prioritize where we spend our time and who we spend our time with. And I've been guilty of putting work and money over my family. And there are times sometimes, you know, depending on the kind of work you do, where you need to invest that extra time to be able to get projects done if you have a deadline. But we have to really think and be careful about where we spend our time and resources. You know, are we pouring more into our family and less into our job, or are we doing the opposite? You know, those things will show themselves. You know, what would your relationship with your family look like if you're wealthy, but you're disconnected? You know, what good is a big mansion if it's just you living in there? You know, what are you using your time and resources for? Money is good for shelter, but wisdom will preserve your life. And our, se- and our final and second point, I'm, I'm going to bring this home for us. Why else do we read our Bible? We need it to deal with our hearts. We need it to deal with our hearts. And in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 2, I'm just going to look at a few scriptures here. You guys still here with me? In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is talking about Jesus. It says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, there is so much richness in this story. In the moment of intense hunger and exhaustion. You know, I don't know if you've ever been intensely hungry and exhausted, but it is hard to think straight. It is hard to function. It is hard to be making the right decisions. And in this state of exhaustion and hunger, when faced with temptation, Jesus' first and, 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 and primary uh, objective was to go to the Word of God for guidance. He didn't say, let me eat first and get my thoughts together, which would have been completely reasonable. Jesus said, even more important than food is that I am following the instructions of God. You know, that is how important the word of God needs to be in our lives. And with the word of God, he was able to, in that moment of hunger and intensity, avoid falling into temptation. And he was able to combat the tempter with scripture, and say man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The word of God is powerful and can help us in any situation. You know, Jesus was hungry and frustrated and still ran to the word of God. Is the word of God our first place to go when you're feeling frustrated, when you're feeling upset, when you're feeling confused? Where do we turn our attention? Where do we go? Jesus is showing us that the words of God have to be our first and primary place to seek direction and instruction. 
Jesus dealt with temptation with the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's eyes, uh, from, from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, our hearts will stray if we do not fill it with the word of God. You know, there are times when you, if I'm going to be honest, when I'm having a good stretch and I'm reading every day and I'm, 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 I'm getting all these you know, jewels, and I'm able to apply it in my life, and I'm like, oh, I just read that scripture yesterday, and here is an opportunity to use it. And then there are moments when you're kind of like, eh, I don't need to read today. I mean, I just read for 10 days straight. And then one day becomes, eh, you know, I still got my notes from, <laughs> you know, Sunday's message. You know, I remember what they said. You know, I can easily fall into... You know, I was doing good, so let me take a little break here. And sure enough, I'm reminded, (laughs) you cannot take a break, Charles. You can't do that. You need to be consistent in the word. You know, our hearts are deceiving. Our hearts will make us think, you're good. You don't need to read today. You You don't need to hear what God has to say. You know this stuff already. You don't have to be reminded. You know, we have to fight that urge and ensure that we are going directly to God's word. Amen? All right, two more scriptures we're going to look at before we close here. In Psalm 119, we're going to go back there. And in verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You know, where do we go for help in life? Where do you go to help others? You know, it has to be God's word. You know, the psalmist is saying, even when it comes to keeping myself pure as a young man, and young men can relate to this scripture exactly. You know, how can we keep our way pure? How can we keep our thoughts pure? How can we keep our actions pure? It's not easy, but God's word provides solution and direction. He says that I store it in my heart. I keep it there for those moments when I'm feeling tempted that I can draw from God's direction. That's how we need to see God's word as something that we keep and store with us in those moments when we need them the most. You know, God's word is there to provide direction for our lives. And finally, going back to Colossians chapter 3 in verse 16, and we're going to end it here. To remind us the importance of God's word. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, God's specific instruction is that the word has to dwell in us. Regardless of your mood or the business of your day, his words need to live in us. You know what the opposite of dwell is? Right? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what the opposite of dwell or not dwelling is, it's to quit. That's the opposite. It's it's to quit. So if it's not living in us, if it's not dwelling in us, it's as if we quit. And it's not to say that we can't continue and go back and pick up where we left off, 
But God is helping us to understand that our direction and devotion to the Bible needs to be one where we do not quit. We work so that the word of God dwells in our lives. And not just that it dwells, but that it does so so richly. And in conclusion, you know, we've learned that we need God's word and understanding why we need the Bible, because we need Jesus. Because we need to grow spiritually, to train ourselves. We need direction in God's word as a lamp to our feet, and we need to deal with our hearts so that we would not go astray. You know, the road to spiritual maturity is paved with the word of God. So let us make decisions to get serious about the word of God and decide to let it live in us richly. To God be the glory. All right, so at this time, we're going to go to God in prayer for our communion. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity and this time to be able to uh, come to you as body. Uh, Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to remember and reflect on the life and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, without him, without, the, uh, without him breaking the wall of sin, God, we would not have an opportunity and chance to know you, to be loved by you, God, and, 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 and to be able to pass on and make it to heaven and spend eternity with you. God, we are so grateful that thousands of years ago he made the sacrifice, uh, not for himself, but for all of us here today. And God, we pray that you would help us uh, to allow the word to dwell in us richly, uh, God, to really develop a deep conviction of why we need uh, the Bible, why we need it to guide our lives, to understand more about Christ, uh, to challenge and direct our hearts. Uh, God, we, we thank you again so much, and we pray for the bread that represents his body uh, and the juice that represents his blood. God, that we would take the time to uh, reflect personally on how we have uh, been directed and drawn closer to you in a relationship with you. Father, again, we thank you for this communion, these things we ask through your son Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>